Welcome to Accessible, the podcast that opens the door to disability leaders and their ideas. I'm George Gatto. And I'm Amelia Raggard. We're glad you joined us. Accessible features interviews and insights from leaders in the disability field. By listening, you can gain knowledge for your own life, career, and professional development. In turn, share these ideas to help others learn from you. Accessible is a partnership between the Missouri Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities, or LIND, and the Missouri University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. LIND's purpose is to prepare graduate students for future work in the field of developmental disabilities. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today we are talking to Dr. Connie Brooks, who is the director of the Missouri LEND, located at the University of Missouri at the Thompson Center in Columbia. She will share her professional journey in the field of developmental disabilities, how the LEND program prepares future professionals to work with people with disabilities, and her views on women in leadership. This is our very first uh, episode of Accessible, and um, so our, our the whole idea is that we want to make uh, leaders in, in, in the field of developmental disabilities and neurodevelopmental disabilities make them accessible and their ideas accessible. And so I guess our first question, Connie, is that we are wondering about is just how did you get into this field uh, and, and end up at, at the Thompson Center? Yeah, I love to answer that question, actually. So I don't know how far back you want me to go. Well, you had some interesting <laughs> things that you'd put in your thing, just about how you got into psychology initially oh, yeah. and then moved yeah. into... Um, yes, yes. So um, going way back, I am from a small town and the only place to work was McDonald's. And yeah. so I worked at McDonald's, transferred when I came to Mizzou as a manager and really liked the people interaction. There's a lot of interesting people that come to McDonald's and work yeah. at McDonald's, and including myself. Um, and but it's a greasy kind of job. It's a grind, and so um, and very uncool when you're in college to work at McDonald's. <laughs> and so, I uh, after a particularly greasy day, I called all the psychologists in the phone book, and two of them called me back. And one, Dr. Mark Altamari, um, met with me for about a year once a week, and he had me go to the Mizzou Library and copy articles that he was interested in, and then we discussed the research. And he did a lot of work for the local police station and um interviewing police um, candidates and things like that. So that was really interesting. And he just did it to be nice and to kind of pay it forward a bit. And the other psychologist, Dr. Jackie Ellis, called me back and said, we want to interview you for a job. And so she hired me as a psychological technician, which is the person who does a lot of testing for evaluations. And her specialty was focusing on the foster care system. So we worked a lot with children in the foster care system, parents whose children had been removed from their care, parents who were becoming foster or adoptive parents. So that whole system um, was really eye-opening and interesting, but also, as you would guess, pretty heart-wrenching. So I did that for a really long time as a psychology technician, went to graduate school, got all the degrees you need, and um, did some therapy and other things. And Um, When I did my internship, I ended up kind of moving to the university to do that at what was called the Assessment and Consultation Clinic at that time and still continued that same kind of work. But after about five or six years of that, I just felt like I couldn't make 
the impact that I wanted to. And, and also just honestly hearing pretty yucky stories with little kids over and over. I mean, I feel like I did the best that I could for a really long time. And just by coincidence, around that time, Dr. Steve Canny, who was the executive director of the Thompson Center, um, invited me to do a lunch talk about how do you work with children in the foster care system. So things like who gives consent for services and who gets the, who can provide the developmental history, all those kinds of things. That was just an area they lacked expertise in. So I came over, did that talk. And at the end of the talk, he asked if I would consider working with children with autism. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> they, I don't know much about them. Um, they seem really challenging. And I just think that would be so hard to do. Um, and then he begged me to come over and uh, just shadow for a little bit. So I shadowed. And after one day, I was in love. Uh-huh. And just the kids are amazing. And the parents, my God, they're just so wonderful. Um, And so I ended up coming in and working at the Thompson Center for part time um, for about several months. And then a position was open and I applied and got that. And so that was about seven years ago. And I've been here ever since. So I switched my specialty from trauma to autism and developmental disabilities. And so I've been thrilled to have that opportunity. I'm eternally grateful for Dr. Canny's request, Um, even though I was not excited at first. He definitely helped change my mind. Then were you immediately a part of the LEND program or or did you uh, move into that later? So I moved into that later, although I was a little bit aware of the program because the Missouri LEND program has been around for more than 25 years at this point. Um, so it was always a big part of the Thompson Center and our training. Um, so I had some postdocs that I worked with who were part of the program. So they told me more about it, but I wasn't actively involved. And Dr. Micah Mazurik, who was the director briefly, um, had gotten another job at another state. And so she asked me to be the PI on that grant. Um, and again, I thought, oh, that sounds really over my head. And I'm not qualified. And I think this is a thing that women tend to do a lot is, you know, um, be hesitant about stepping into leadership roles. And so I talked to Dr. Canny about it. He said, you have to do it. It's career changer. And again, best advice I'd gotten. It's my favorite thing to do in the world is to lead that group and the faculty in it and the trainees. And I just feel like it's, um, it's really been a calling that I didn't know I had because every trainee then gets to touch other trainees as they, you know, develop in their careers and all the patients they get to touch. And I just feel like we're, we're teaching people how to, I don't know, just have family centered care and do things at the ultimately highest level of quality of care, which is really important for this population. Maybe we should uh, talk about what is a LEND. Yeah. What does that even stand for? Yeah, sure. So so LEND stands for Leadership in Education in Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities. And the LEND program is a federally funded program through HRSA. And um, there are, I believe, about 52 LEND programs across the nation. At this point, they just recently added a couple more. So that's great. Um, and LEND programs look different 
differently state to state, but the purpose of them is to increase the clinical workforce of folks who will work with um, children with special health care needs. It's meant to be interdisciplinary. It's meant to have a family-centered approach, evidence-based approach, and then it also has a policy and advocacy component. Um, at our lend, we've also added a competency specific to cultural humility, which of course fits well with all of those pieces, and um, we've worked really hard to intertwine that too. So, so that's what lend is. But state to state, it can look a little different, and a lot of states don't meet in person um, before COVID even. Um, we're fortunate that we get all of our trainees for one day a week for an entire academic year. So we have a lot of um, things that we can do that other states just their programs aren't able to do because they're spaced out geographically. I was going to ask, um, and maybe you just alluded to this, but what do you think is one of the strengths of Missouri's LEND program? Well, I'm completely biased. So I think our program is actually pretty amazing. Um, and we've gotten feedback on that from our site visits. And when I go to director's meetings, it's really fun to be a leader at the table to say, well, here's all the things we're doing. And people are taking notes and stealing our ideas, which is totally appropriate. Um, I think one of our strengths is that um, we have significant buy-in from campus and the university and leadership. And so we get a lot of support from departments to have their um, students apply to be trainees for the program. Um, and they really work with us to create the courses and all the kind of red tapey type stuff that happens at universities. So so we've been able to navigate that in ways that I think support students. Um, the other thing, because of the longevity of our program. Um, we have faculty who've been around for a while um, and really can speak to how things have evolved over time. Um, and the depth of their expertise is really sharp. And and so when our faculty speaks with our trainees, um, they have a lot of good patient stories to share, um, confidentially, obviously. But um, so that richness of stories and experiences and faculty will talk about mistakes that they've made and what they learned from it and how that, you know, changed them. So I just feel like that those relationships that we have at all levels is our strength. So with departments, with campus, with our faculty, with our trainees, um, that's been really fantastic. Um, the other I think important part of our program that we do that we've gotten a lot of um, good feedback on is our family shadowing program. And so our family advocate uh, faculty mentor um, set up that program a long time ago, and we have a f families with children with special health care needs who allow TIPS trainees or LEND trainees into their homes, into to attend appointments, to go grocery shopping, to go to the park. They wow. um, So they have a relationship with them over the fall semester and students are required to spend at least eight hours with their family. And we have some reflection questions for them to kind of think about and talk about with the group. Um, but the families have children with just a wide range of things going on. So we've got kids who are under age two. We've got um, young adults who are, are part of that program. Um, ranging from individuals with autism to individuals with Down syndrome, with other sorts of neurodevelopmental disabilities, limb differences, things like that. So there's just a wide variety of children that they get to work with. Um, and that experience 
above all the other ones. If that was the only thing that we did, I think we would still be successful because the trainees every single year say it's the most powerful thing that happens to them and changes the way they think about patient care because they just developed these relationships. You sort of touched on it, but I'd, I'd just like to see if you have anything else to say. But what what is the most powerful thing about the LIND program from your perspective? And Yeah, so... Again, I'd emphasize like the relationship building that we have. Um, I'm really proud of how we've helped trainees really think about who they are and who they want to be in their career and also how their own experiences have shaped that and how they want that to maybe look the same or different over time. So we think about cultural competence and cultural humility. We've spent a lot of time talking with trainees about, you know, to do really good, high quality family centered care, you have to examine yourself and you have to know yourself. You have to be able to like acknowledge, oh, this is a bias I have. And what am I going to do about that? And who can I talk to about that? And, and being okay with talking through mistakes and what you learn from them. So this idea of there has to be a layer of vulnerability. And so we set that up pretty early on in the program where we divide into small groups and pairs. And we have some open discussions about our experiences and trainees kind of share at a level that they're comfortable with. But we we have lots of activities planned to get them to kind of share the parts about themselves that have shaped who they are. And a lot of times those are positive things. A lot of times they're not. And so um, there's no judgment about any of that, but they're, it's factual things that have happened that change who they are and how they chose this field. And so we really take that information, discuss it, and then apply it in the sense of, okay, so you had this, let's say, you know, if someone had a father who was an alcoholic. So then if they're working with a child who has, you know, alcoholism in their family, they will absolutely have some perspective on that, that they can use uh, to help the family. They'll also probably have some bias about that, which they need to be tuned into. So, but if that trainee can't talk about having alcoholism in their family, they can't get to that point. And so we really kind of utilize this vulnerability piece and discussion to to get them there in a way that's comfortable. And trainees have just talked about how hard that is, of course. Yeah. Um, but really, by the end of the year, I'm like, okay, enough of the like chit chat about your background, <laughs> you know, let's move on. Um, but it really does make a difference when we're talking about working with families and, and how that our experiences shape that. Right. Wow. That, that is super powerful. When w- when you um, think about going back to your past as a, a manager at McDonald's or your work at McDonald's, right, right. I mean, do some of those skills transfer to to leading, you know, for to both your research and to leading the the Lind program? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I don't know how many listeners have worked at McDonald's or fast food in general. It's a really uh, character building experience. (laughs) Um, And actually, I I had a lot of fun. Um, But um, certainly for me, it wasn't a long term career, of course. Um, But all sorts of people work at McDonald's and come to McDonald's. And I do remember that um, at uh, one McDonald's in the Columbia area that they had a hostess who cleaned tables, greeted customers, and um, she was she had special needs. I at that time I didn't know what they were, but certainly some cognitive difficulties. Very sweet woman. She worked there, I think, 
like 25 years, but wow. she appeared very young and acted very young. Um, and I found it interesting how customers really warmed to her um, and how employees did the same and helped her with things. Um, and what was so cool about her is that she also, you could count on her 100%. It's snowing, she's there. It's someone needs to stay late, she stays late. You know, it's just this like dependability uh, to her job was was really um, impressive, I think. So I, I learned a lot from her without her knowing it, I yeah. think. Um, and then just in general, working with people you know, college students, but also um, mothers and fathers who were of lower socioeconomic status. And I just I just learned how to work with a lot of people. And most importantly, what I try to convey to trainees is how do you align with people who are different from you? And then how do you find the commonalities? So um, I think that when we're working with families, it's so important if I notice I'm bristling for whatever reason from my past, you know, to acknowledge that, but then also to think, but here's what I have in common with this family. Like we both adore our kids. We both work really hard, you know, and just that alignment piece, um, I think is the most important when you're working with really sensitive information and really challenging patients sometimes. Yeah. How, how do you do that? I mean, you know, today there is so much um, focus on differences, you know, and, and, even around, you know, the, a big one within the autism field is is vaccinations, yeah. for example, which now yeah, right now yeah. because of COVID, we're hearing so much about, you know, people who want to get vaccinated and anti-vaxxers. And mm -hmm. do you do you talk with the trainees about, you know, do they address it or how do they address it or um, mm -hmm. what is your advice around those sorts of issues? Yeah, we absolutely address it because it's it's a real piece of their clinical work is that they'll have families who engage in alternative practices or beliefs that are really different yeah. from them. Um, and how do we respect a family's choice to mm -hmm. their own values while also having a, some responsibility to education? Mm -hmm. um, and so we do role plays related to that. Um, we see patients um, and sometimes that comes up. We share anecdotes about from faculty who've worked with families who've had some differences. Um, and then we also have a journal club, and one of our sessions is specific to alternative treatments. Mm -hmm. um, and so we talk about things like... Um, I don't know, chelation treatments and, you know, all, all the things that people who have children with special health care needs seek out. And why do they do that? And of course, really understanding when it's your kid, you do whatever it takes. You spend all the money, you spend all the time, you, you devote all your resources to it. And we can all relate to that. Yeah. You know, we'd all lay down in front of a train for our children. So to try these kooky things not knowing if it's going to work or not, we can get that. Mm -hmm. um, so we practice supporting a family's belief and also just giving them some alternatives because we don't want to turn them off to an open mind mm -hmm. about some other things for sure. Um, and I think it comes up in other ways too. So for treatments, but also just in interactions, you know, I had a family, I just really loved working with them and saw um, this kiddo for an evaluation. And one of the mom's concerns was that this is a little boy. 
he was playing with, you know, stereotypical female toys. And it was very upsetting to her. And I have a very different belief about that. Um, And she, very educated, and said, so you're probably going to think that, you know, we're bigots or, you know, racist or, you know, anti-feminist. And she said, we're just not. We just don't want him to do that because we want him to be a stereotypical male. And I was blown away by her insight about that. And so we just talked about it. And I said, I support whatever's valuable to your family. Um, now, I didn't recommend treatments to address that, but certainly it came up because we have dolls in our materials that we use here at the Thompson Center. Yeah. And, you know, So it was it was helpful to have that on the table so that I could really think about my own beliefs and then how do I kind of support hers. And so these are the kinds of things, whether it's related to treatment or vaccinations or anything else that comes up, it's applicable. To me, that's one of the most fascinating things about maybe what you guys are doing is how do you train the students to be reflexive about their own beliefs and then also accepting of and certainly supporting of individual choices of the families they're working with. I I think it's challenging. Um, What we've found over the years is you can teach the expertise and the knowledge and the content and there's books and there, you know, colleagues, you can ask questions. So um, all that stuff, we've got many things in place to to teach trainees that. um, So we spend a less time on that, although we spend a great amount of time on it. Um, but we we emphasize more like these, I guess, soft skills or these more subtle things that you're not going to get time in a classroom to learn about. So you need to practice relating to people who are different from you and respecting their beliefs and values um, and making mistakes and learning from them. So all of these pieces that in the end is going to give you better patient care, which we believe has better patient outcomes then. So if you align with the family and they feel heard and valued and respected, they will likely be more open to your recommendations and more mm-hmm. likely to implement them. And so then ultimately this is all for the patients. Yeah. So um, I don't know that we've touched on it too much, but I do know that you know the Missouri Lind program is uh, interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think or can you talk about some of the the different disciplines and are these lessons applicable across discipline? Yeah, yeah. Also, one of my favorite parts of the program is that everyone comes in with their unique perspective from their training mm-hmm. program. So um, at the Missouri Lend, we have um, physical therapy, social work, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, psychology, special education, applied behavior analysis. Um, and then we also have a family advocate. So typically it's a parent, but it could also be a grandparent or a different relative. Um, and then we always have a self-advocate as well. And then more recently, we've added sibling advocates. Yeah. So last year was our first year for that. And our trainee, Taylor, was amazing and added in recommendations for the sibling perspective for families that we had not done before. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's pretty diverse. We also have a um, medical faculty member, so we don't have a resident yet, but we are planning to in two years. We just 
got a fellowship program, so we'll have a developmental behavioral pediatrician resident, which is kind of unheard of. So we're excited about that. And then um, this year, we will have a dentistry resident, so a pediatric dentist. Wow. Yeah. So we're really excited about that, too. So um, all of these lessons are pretty applicable to all of them. Um, But when you see patients, of course, they are complicated sometimes, but not complicated enough to need the expertise of of that whole entire team. Plus, that would be really intimidating. <laughs> um, so, um, so we involve the students in patient care for what makes the most sense for the patient. But in terms of the activities and the learning and all the the group cohesion things that we do, everyone's involved, including the self advocate, including the family advocate, including ev- everybody, faculty as well. What a wonderful opportunity for the trainees because how often do we really get to talk with people from the other fields who may be interacting with the same families um, that we're interacting with but we would never know it Um, right right you know whether it's i I think like an ot and a social worker all uh being in the same classroom, there just must be a really great conversation or interesting conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of folks will end up working in interdisciplinary healthcare teams and hospitals mm-hmm. or outpatient settings. So we're trying to prepare them for that. And we, so we do a lot of talk about like, what do these teams look like? And are you the type of person that's going to talk too much or too little or, you know, in different situations, how might that look differently? Um, and then how do you make sure that everyone's voice is heard, even if they aren't comfortable sharing? So being part of a team can be really complicated, especially if you're with people who are at different levels of, I guess, the the medical hierarchy, you know, right. um, it's a thing that exists. So you yeah. have to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what if you disagree? What if you have strong opinions about things? How do you advocate but have an open mind? So we practice those things um, and then we see patients and then do them. Mm-hmm. So I come from a social work background and, and actually completed my MSW a few years ago. And um, I'm just thinking what a valuable experience for them to have that um, training before they kind of sort of enter the field uh, formally. And, and the medical hierarchy you're referring to is something that we had talked about in, in our own um just theoretical sort of thinking through future situations. And, um, you know, if you're the social worker in the room and you're talking with medical professionals who sort of culturally are revered as, you know, having the most knowledge or, or sort of the final say, you know, how do you make sure that the social work perspective and, and that our values are, are also heard in that conversation. So, um, I mean, what is the student's, do they express some of those difficulties in their own like learning experiences or experiences in the field? And how do you approach that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. They express some of those challenges. Now they're all at the level where they're doing, you know, typically some practicum or field placements. Um, So they are definitely low on the totem pole of power. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, but they are observing, of course. And so they are noticing those things and we have them observe and we ask them those things. Um, and faculty talk a lot about their experiences in teams. Um, and because we have a medical um, faculty member, um, he can talk about what that looks like. Now, of course, he's very biased because he's part of the LEN program and is bringing in his fellows in the future. But um, these are these are real things. And so 
we just end up thinking through like what are strategies that you can use? How do you align with people? How do you postpone decisions if you need more time to think, which I'm not a think on my feet type of person. So I'm good at postponing decisions if I need to. Um, So we just talk through all those things. And again, for us, it's the pattern that we use is really just let's put it out there and acknowledge things that are hard. Let's talk about them. Um, let's role play and practice them. And then let's do them in real life and and see what we can learn. And so that kind of developmental approach has been pretty effective. And, you know, we do follow-up surveys with our LEND alumni who are almost all of them are in leadership positions and can talk about some of the experiences that were helpful and where they're still struggling. And I think it's an ongoing thing um, that you just keep learning about. This sort of goes along with that um, power dynamics in the room, but something that you've said that you're really passionate about is women in leadership. So how does that, how do you bring that into the LEND program and sort of your personal passion for that into the field? Well, first of all, thank you for asking me about that because I love to talk about it. Um, so uh, I, I think as everyone's aware that differences is a huge thing in society right now. It's very stressful. A lot of us have stopped listening to the news and you know social media and things like that. And so when I think about gender differences and women in leadership roles, it just in my personal experience, I've faced a lot of challenges. Every woman I know who has had some sort of sexual harassment in the workplace, um, the behaviors of women in meetings is very different sometimes from the behaviors of men. Um, and so we talk about, you know, what the literature says about that. Um, and we talk about the leading, I guess, theories, you know, do you lean in or do you um utilize traditional approaches that are more stereotypical women approaches. So so there's a lot of things for them to think about. And we again, we just kind of put it all out on the table and talk about it. But what I think is the most helpful um, is when our women faculty talk about their experiences. And so I am really fortunate that I'm on the um, interim executive leadership team here at the Thompson Center. And so part of that means I get to share my thoughts on many things that otherwise I wouldn't have a seat at the table to do. Um, So I take advantage of that. And I will come back to our LEND group and say, so I just attended this meeting and here's what I noticed. And I share my mistakes too. So I remember sharing a a year or two ago that um, I went to a meeting. It's mostly men, um, a few women, including myself, attend. And it's a meeting with the um, Missouri um, Autism Centers that we have a consortium here in Missouri. And it's just a really, really great group of leaders. Um, And I was kind of newer to the group. And Um, I have a misperception that I'm good at directions, um, but I'm not. And I did not plan ahead. And I could not find where this meeting was, although I thought I could. And I was really late. And I was so embarrassed, sweats pouring down my face, you know. Um, And I had missed some really important information. I didn't represent myself the way that I had wanted to. Um, And so I talked to the group about what that was like for me. And that, you know, lesson learned, like when you 
have misperceptions about yourself, just to be honest about them. First of all, use your GPS for crying out loud, plan ahead, you know, all of those things. But I think we, we talked a lot about, you know, how do you prepare to go to a meeting and what does it mean to be on time or to be late? And what does that look like to other people? Um, but then I also talk about other things, you know, like at, at that meeting in particular, I noticed that none of the men had paper or pencil. And I noticed that women had laptops and paper and pencil, you know, so what does that mean? I don't know. We can speculate. Um, so we did. And we talked about it. And um, I also shared that with Steve Canny, who after that, always brought paper and pen to meetings, you know. So so just kind of using our own experiences to talk about what is it like to be a woman in leadership and where are the challenges and and how do you face those? And I think that it's, it's just really, really important and um, especially important to then bring, like kind of lift others up with you. So whether that's other women, if it's people of color, if it's um, individuals with special health care needs, you know, that you're always, always being thoughtful about bringing along others with you. So if you have an opportunity to have the ear of an administrator, bring, bring someone else's perspective with you. That's, I feel like, part of your responsibility as a leader. I'm, I'm curious, like how in the conversations with the trainees in particular, you know, how do, how um, how do the young men uh, take those? <laughs> um, I, I would love to ask them more about that. So <laughs> so first of all, just in health professions, we don't have a lot of men who are in those positions. So the room is more women for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but. The, the young men have joined in that conversation and have shared what they've observed. Um, there's always a little bit of un- awkward or uncomfortable, like laughing or, you know, like, Haha, no offense to you, you know, right. white man over there in the corner. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we try to invo- invite everybody in to have a part of the discussion. And then if I notice someone's not joining, I might, if I know they usually join and they're not, I might call on them and say like, you know, I'm just wondering what you're thinking. If they typically are less comfortable doing that, I might later pull them aside and say, tell me what you were thinking about. And then I might try to present some of that perspective on their behalf. Um, Because it's, it is especially important to get the perspective of everyone in the room, especially the white men who might be might find themselves more in these positions to pull other people along with them than others would. So we want to include all of that. Do you guys just talk about, and I'm sure you do after hearing hearing you talk today, but do you talk about, you know, privilege and mm-hmm. what that looks like and um, how it, I guess, just being aware of whether it's it's white privilege, male privilege, does that come up during mm-hmm. during your Lind? Yeah, absolutely. And we've really improved in that area. I would say it was an area of growth for us for some time. Um, and a couple of years ago, we were more intentional about using those words and intertwining cultural competency discussions into everything we do, as opposed to let's have an activity on cultural competence. <laughs> you know, that's fine, but it's not enough. Um, and the effort has really been spearheaded by one of our graduate assistants, uh, Sarah De Marchena, and she's got a strong interest in that, a lot of expertise, and she works really hard to get 
resources and materials. And so she leads those discussions and I learned from her. Um, and she um, talks to them about her own experiences as a Latinx individual. Um, and we talk about privilege and what that will look like in a patient care setting mm-hmm. and how do we manage that and what do we do again to elevate others. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this actually just two days ago. We, um, a, my postdoc, uh, Dr. Prickett and I were working with a family, um, and there was a black single father with his son, and they were fantastic to work with. And what I noticed is that um, this dad kept referring to me as ma'am or miss, and you know, which of course is very respectful, but no one else other than black men have referred to me as ma'am. Um, and I don't know why. And it made me wonder about that. And then I thought, well, who should I ask about this? Or is that a cultural behavior? It, should I say something? You know, I, it just made it was just a unique behavior that I observed. Mm-hmm. And so I plan to talk about it in tips. So is this gentleman perceiving me as having privilege as a white person, as the doctor? Um, you know, what is what's that all about? Um and what do I do if there's any level of discomfort on that father's behalf? Like, what do I do to mitigate that? So I don't know. So I think that as we're having these discussions, I want to be always paying attention in clinic to bring these stories so that we can discuss them and think about what do they mean. And I don't know what they mean all the time, but maybe somebody else does. Or we have some theories that we can kind of work on. And, and like I said, Sarah's the one who helps everybody be vulnerable and dig in and and they do they they really do so when you think about sort of the future of of neurodevelopmental disabilities mm-hmm. or you know what where do you think the field is going and what do you think are going to be the most important um things that we face that seems like a really hard question it is. <laughs> um you could take it wherever you want thank you um i I think that we're, of course, heading in the direction of understanding kind of the the biomarkers for autism and other, you know, neurodevelopmental disabilities. I think that we are heading towards greater understanding of what treatments work best um, and what treatments aren't working. Um, I think we're also, for me, what's really important is just this overall acceptance of people who may have differences. Um, And, you know, when I think about like school settings, you know, my daughter came home from high school and talked all the time about kids that had, you know, diagnoses. And, but that's not how she framed it. it was like, oh, Joe, who, you know, has autism and he's so fun because blah, 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 um, without any sense of judgment or things like that. And that is just not how it was when I was in right. school. Like it was very segregated. So the integration piece um, in schools and communities, I think is going to continue. All right. So that I think is, is a really positive way that the field is moving. Um, There's a big movement towards integrated care as well, which, of course, the LEND program mimics. Um, And so why have all these specialists to address different parts of an individual's functioning if the only way that they're talking with each other is reading each other's notes on the electronic medical record? You know, Mm -hmm. we can access all those things usually, but I that's not the whole story. And so when 
you know, my colleague and friend, Ashley, the speech language pathologist is two doors down from me. And I have a kid who, you know, is doing some unusual stuttering type thing. And she educates me and my team on, uh, you know, a phenomenon called cluttering. I never heard of this. She could explain it to the family. We could give this family resources. You know, it's just this level of quality that when you're siloed in your specialty, you just don't even know you're missing it. How do you think um, like social media and the use of the way, I guess the way information spreads over social media is is helping that movement towards um, towards acceptance and inclusion and some of the things that you're you're speaking about. I guess, oh, so let me start by giving an example. Okay. I uh, specifically have, uh, I think probably because the algorithm tracks different things that I'm looking at, right? Right. Um, that disability things pop up in my Instagram. And like, there are some like autism behaviors that I've learned about through videos that are talking about autism acceptance mm-hmm. and um, like, I'm not going to say it right, but stimming mm-hmm. and different things that I wouldn't know about otherwise, even though I work in this field, but I don't work specifically with autism. So I didn't know that there was this thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just think it's interesting the ways we're getting information. Have you seen that um, impact your trainees and and do you think it's helping? And Yeah. So first of all, my disclaimer is I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with social media, like many people, right, I'm y'all. sure. Yes. Um, and the algorithms really bother me that that's the way it is. So, um, right. but um, I think overall it's, it's pretty helpful, especially when organizations like Lend, the Thompson Center, you said, you know, all these organizations are have Facebook pages and have mm-hmm. Twitter and are sharing information. I, I think that that's really right. valuable. Um, I have noticed an increase in high school friends or, you know, people who are on my feed who are talking more about, oh, yeah, my son has autism. And here's, you know, can I ask his teacher if he, if she's vaccinated? You know, so so people, I think, are just it's easier to be open about some of those challenges on social media than in person. And so I appreciate that. Um, Social media, I think, of course, always has this undertone of difficulty, I think, when people complain or don't understand things or just have a lack of information. Um, But I think what is especially helpful is the self-advocate voice that can come through more easily in social media. So if if you're an individual that identifies as having autism or other kinds of things, um, but maybe you don't have access to leaders in the field or, you know, other voices, social media is a really easy way to kind of share your opinion. And so I've been real appreciative of people who have used that platform to share their thoughts. And, you know, recently we've just gotten really helpful feedback on the use of the puzzle piece and how that's been offensive to people. Um, and Can what you are, explain, yeah, describe that? I don't know. Yeah, what yeah. So we've um, just been, again, pay, trying to pay attention to mm-hmm. these voices. Yeah. Um, and for some, um, especially individuals who identify as autism, you know, the puzzle piece has kind of universally represented autism. You know, people get the tattoos and the buttons and all of that. Um, and there have there's been studies actually on how people conceptualize a puzzle piece and the buzzwords that come out of that is like it's incomplete right. and it needs fixing it needs to be put together 
mm-hmm. by others. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not how we feel about individuals with special health care needs at all. Um, and so there's been some pushback and vocalization about that. And so we've worked really hard to like remove all of that from any materials that we have mm-hmm. um, and instead use other kinds of logos or just kind of have open conversations about this. And, and you know, our self-advocate last year, her name is Claire Ridgeway, and she's just a fantastic advocate. She talked a lot about kind of autism awareness days and how she feels about that. And so just really opening everybody's eyes to, you know, listen to the people who identify as having these things going on. And social media is, is just a really nice way to, to, to share that out. So, Connie, if someone wants to learn more about your work or about the Missouri Lind, where where can they go? Yeah, well, I would love to hear from people if they had any questions or wanted more information. Um, so they can go to the Thompson Center website is probably the easiest. Um, so going to the Thompson Center, it's for autism and neurodevelopmental disabilities. And there's a training tab and, and our program is listed in, in that training tab. Um, and it has a lot of details about the program, but also contact information. So if someone wanted to reach out with questions or comments or things like that, we read all of that. Well, thank you for for talking with us. Yes, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me and for just the opportunity to brag about our program. And um, I'm really proud of of all of our trainees and faculty. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to share. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Accessible. Accessible is hosted and produced by George Gatto and Amelia Rygert and co-produced by Carrie Benson from the University of Missouri, Kansas City Institute for Human Development, which is the home of the Missouri USED. Accessible is a joint project between the Missouri USED and the Missouri LEND program, which is funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services through grant number T73MC00022. Episodes of Accessible are released every two weeks and can be found wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Join us next time to hear more insights and ideas from leaders in the disability world.